All right, it is August and it's the time when loads of new doctors join the profession. And it's also the time when Medics Money traditionally does our financial tips for new doctors because medical school has taught you loads about being a doctor, as you would expect. But it's almost certainly taught you almost nothing about how to manage your finances. And as we're going to see, doctors' finances are not great at the moment and they definitely need managing. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome alongside myself today, two very special guests. So my name is Dr. Tommy Perkins. I'm a GP and the co-founder of Medics Money. And it's 15 years since I was at medical school. Ouch. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves as well? Tell us your credentials and if you wish to share how long since you left medical school. Hi, I'm Syrah. I'm an academic F2 in the Oxford Deanery. Before that, I used to be a chartered accountant and I have been, it's only been two years since med school, so not that long. Cool. My name's Dr. Ed Cantelow. I'm a salary GP down on the South Coast. I'm also the other half of Medics Money. But before that, I used to be an accountant and a chartered tax advisor. So I went to medical school in 2011. So I started about 13 years ago. Ouch. Okay. So although I've been the longest since medical school, I'd just like to point out that I'm not the oldest because Ed spent a long time as an accountant as well. And I'd love to get into comparing medicine to accountancy, but that's not why we're here today. Maybe we'll do that at the end. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. We are here today because doctors really need to talk about money. And you're thinking, what? Like, no one's, no doctors talk about money. We don't talk about money. I bet none of you sat down at your medical school interview. And when they said, is there any questions? Did did anyone say, what's the starting salary? How much do you get paid? Because doctors aren't supposed to talk about money. But we need to talk about money because, unfortunately, doctors have had absolutely savage real terms pay cuts of up to 30% over the last 10 years. And I really hope that this slide goes out of date because at the time of recording, there's industrial action, consultants on strike, junior doctors on strike. So I hope that this slide does go out of date, but it hasn't been out of date for 10 years. And, you know, so you've had an absolutely savage pay cut of up to 30%. So we need to get better with our money, using our money. In addition to the pay cuts, and I don't think many people are talking about this, but medical school has got a lot more expensive, specifically the way that student loans are done. So you might be aware that there's plan one to five student loans. Plan one loans are what old timers like me and Ed had. And this was really quite a good debt and much less punitive than what you probably have, which is a plan two student loan. So anyone who went to university after September 2012 has a plan two student loan where the interest rate is higher, the repayment terms are more tricky and the amount of debt is higher. So your student loan is unfortunately 
effectively a 9% graduate tax on earnings over £27,295. We've got lots more information about student loans, but I'm just making you aware that the loans are nowhere near as good as when me and Ed were there. Syra, you've probably got a plan too, right? Yeah, but yeah, I'm in £109,000 worth of debt. So that I'm never paying that off. That is just, it's going to get written off at 30, just no matter what I do. Yeah. And until that time that you do pay it off, you are effectively paying 9% of your earnings over £27,295, which is a tremendous amount of money. Okay. In addition to that, pensions taxation has changed. Doesn't really affect more junior colleagues, but it's just something to be aware of. It is on the horizon. And I think this last point here is a massive point, And that is that you are going to be working much longer than previous generations of doctors, okay? So we're going to talk about the pension in a minute. We get a lot of questions about the pension. But really, what we need to know about the pension for this slide is that there are three different sections. There's what's called the 1995 section, and that there you retired at age 60. The 2008 section, you retired at 65. And then there's the now the 2015 section, which all of us are now in, and that retirement age is not fixed like the 95 scheme at 60. The 2015 scheme is linked to your state retirement age. So for me at the moment, that is 68. OK, so I do not. I love being a doctor, still do. But I do not want to work to the age of 68. So these are all things that we need to bear in mind. And you're sat there thinking, well, it's OK, because those consultants are absolutely raking it in. You know, that's the golden carrot. When you become a consultant, everything will be great. Well, unfortunately, this slide here shows the pay cuts in real terms since 2010. If you ran it from 2008, it would be even worse. But running it from 2010, you can see that consultants in real terms have had the biggest pay cuts of all. So there is no golden carrot at the end. We all need to make better financial decisions. How can we do that? Well, that's what this talk is all about. So we are going to whip through this. And if you're watching on YouTube and you've got any questions, drop them in the comments. And you don't need to worry about taking notes because we're going to give you links to all of the resources on Medics Money. But we're going to talk to you about how to pay the right amount of tax, okay? Because paying the right amount of tax is absolutely essential. We're going to tell you about how to save up to 45% on super expensive expenses that you have to pay, like GMC fees and if you're doing exams. We're going to talk about your tax code, pensions, why you might consider doing some investing, why you definitely need to do some budgeting, and we're going to take some questions at the end. As I said, you don't need to panic about writing everything down. Everything that you need is in our free ebook, which is called What Medical School Didn't Teach Money. And when I left medical school, I was in £85,000 worth of debt. I had no clue about finances at all. Unlike Syra and Ed, I didn't have any training in finances at all. And I learned the hard way. So I've written that book and hopefully it will help you to not learn the hard way like me. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. I'm going to hand straight over to Dr. Ed Cantelow. Yeah. All right. Hi, guys. So first of all, we're going to talk about a bit about tax in particularly your professional expenses and claiming tax relief on those. But before we do that, it's really important just to give you some essential 
tax knowledge, okay, so that everyone has the basics. And a lot of you may know this already, and that's great, but some of you won't know this. So just make sure that we're all on the same page. Let's go through some essential tax knowledge, okay? So the first thing to say is that the tax year in the UK is a bit strange. It runs from the 6th of April to the following 5th of April, okay? So most countries have a calendar year, which does make more sense, but the UK, for historical reasons, it runs from the 6th of April to the following 5th of April. So at the time of recording, we're in the 2023 to 2024 tax year, and that runs from the 6th of April, 2023, all the way up to the 5th of April, 2024. The next thing to note is that most people in the UK will get a tax-free personal allowance. So that's an amount of money that you get where you can get earn up to that amount completely tax-free, okay, when it comes to income. So that tax-free personal allowance is £12,570. So for most of us, the first £12,570 should be tax-free. That does change if your earnings go over £100,000. We're going to assume for the minute that won't affect you guys just yet. So for most of you, if not all of you, you should get that personal allowance. Once you've taken off that personal allowance of £12,570, your income or your non-savings income in particular, such as your salary, will be taxed at 20% and then 40% and then 45%. Okay, so the first £12,570 is tax-free for your income tax. Then you get 20% on the next 37700 You then pay 40% on the next £87,440. And if you're lucky enough to go over £125,000, £140, you then pay 45%. Okay. Now, note, we're just talking about what we call non-savings income there. So that would include your salary. It would probably not going to affect you guys, but it would include other things such as rental income and partnership income. But the main thing is to say that's what happens to your salary. Okay. The tax rates for other types of income, such as dividends, for example, they may differ. And the last piece of essential knowledge that you should know is that, of course, I'm sure you're all aware of this one, but HM Revenue and Customs are responsible for collecting taxation around the entire UK. So you'll see them come up quite a bit. And note that when we talk about these rates, they apply to England, Wales and Northern Ireland. In Scotland, there are slightly different rates. There are five rates of tax, 19%, 20%, 21%, 42% and 47%, and slightly different thresholds. The personal allowance is still the same, and that £125,140 limit, which you pay, pay additional rate tax, that's also the same. But there are slightly different thresholds and slightly higher tax rates. Okay, so... The next thing we need to talk about is your employment expenses, okay? Because you can claim tax relief on a lot of the professional subscription fees and other expenses that you will be paying throughout your career, okay? And you can claim for the previous four tax years. As I said before, a tax year runs from the 6th of April to the 5th of April. So if you're just starting out in your career, it may well be that from now on you can start making claims for your expenses, but just always bear in mind that you can always go back four years if you forget to make a claim or you don't make a claim at, in, at that time. Okay. So if you take, for example, just, just someone who's got an expense claim in June 2023, they can claim for their expenses all the way back from the 6th of April 2019. So, you know, there's quite a, a long time frame, but it's good to, to do it as and when you go along. Okay. But you can claim for the previous four tax years and the current tax year that you're in. When it comes to claiming employment expenses, and we'll tell you in a minute what you can claim and, of course, how to do it, it's always good to wait until the end of the tax year, just because although you can make a claim within a tax year, it's always good to make the claim after because you can just get all your expenses all in one go, make the claim to get the tax back, 
and that just makes things nice and simple for you. Sorry to interrupt, I, I do get asked about no. things like your stethoscope and sure. if you had bought your stethoscope in a tax year that you hadn't paid any income tax in, then you can't actually claim it, is that right? So it has to be a tax year where you have paid income tax, it can't be just when you spent yeah. money. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. So everything you claim for, and we'll go through those on that list in a second, everything you claim for is on what we call a receipts basis. So when did you spend the money? That's when you, that's technically the point at which you can make the claim from that date, but you have to have been paying income tax. So a lot of, you know, medical students, they're not actually paying income tax at the time. So when they buy stuff or they pay their initial sort of, let's say a initial BMA or MDU fee or whatever, they can't claim that if they paid for it whilst they were medical students because they weren't earning income tax. So it's a good, it's a good point. And I think I'll touch on the stethoscope a little bit more on the side after this one, because that's another, there's another caveat to that stethoscope point, but certainly in terms of what you can claim for in terms of professional expenses, you can claim for a lot of your expenses, including your GMC fee. Okay. You're, if you pay for the BMA, then you can claim that fee as well. And any defense, medical defense union or medical protection society fees or any other you know, insurance company, you can claim the tax back on those. Okay. So it's really important to, when you make a payment to these people is to jot down or put in a spreadsheet or keep a receipt, whatever you do, just keep a record of what you're spending when you become a doctor, or if you're a doctor, just keep a record of all those expenses because after the tax year, you can then make a claim for all those expenses and then get the tax back on those expenses. Okay. Cause no one does that for you. You have to do it yourself. And again, we'll explain how in a second. Other allowable costs that will apply perhaps later on down the line for you guys are any Royal College fees that you incur. And in particular, any examination fees that you incur for any Royal College exams, as long as they're mandatory under a training contract. So if you, for example, I'm a GP, if you become a GP trainee, the Royal College GPs will set exams for you. They're quite expensive, but if you pay for those exams, then you can claim the tax back on those because it's mandatory under your training contract as a GP trainee, for example. Any costs of travel to courses, course fees, etc. if they're a must, if they're an intrinsic part of your employment and one of the duties of your job, you can also claim for those. So if you have to get pay a train fare, for example, to go on your mandatory weekly teaching, then you should be able to claim those as well. Okay. It doesn't count for sort of courses that you pay for yourself to go on, you know, on the weekend or anything like that. But certainly if you're, you know, you're made to go to F2 teaching and it's in a different hospital, you should be able to claim the cost of travel for that. Okay. Now things that you can't claim for on the next slide. So yeah, so just very quickly, cause you know, just so you guys are a little bit aware of this because uh, we get a lot of questions about these. Here are a couple of things that you can't claim the tax back on. Okay. So first of all, any fees that your employer reimburses you for or pays for you. Okay. So for example, for your study budget, you can't claim the tax back on those, which is kind of fair enough if you haven't personally made the expense. Okay. Any fees for revision courses for your exams, you can't claim those. Any fees for diplomas taken whilst you're doing your job as a doctor, you can't claim those. Quite unfairly, any fees for continuing professional development, such as courses, the fees incurred for attending conferences, and even things like your ALS, which is really terrible, you can't claim the tax back on those. There is a very long-winded good reason why HMRC well, it's not a good reason. They, they think they've got a good reason why they can't allow those expenses. They just trust us on that for now, okay? But the other thing to say is about the stethoscope and other kind of capital expenses like that. So if you buy an asset, so an asset being something that you, you're going to use for more than one year, like a stethoscope, 
HMRC usually will give you tax back on it if you replace it, but not when you initially buy it. Okay. So just bear that in mind. If you bought a stethoscope at medical school, you can't claim the tax back on that. You couldn't either as a doctor, but when you, if you buy a new one, because yours gets a bit scratchy or whatever reason, or you lose it, they always go missing in hospitals. Then when you replace it, you should be able to claim the tax back on that. So I think, you know, the question you're all asking is how do I actually make that claim? Well, if you're ready to make that claim, so, you know, for example, if you just started or you're just starting as a, an F1, you know, wait until the 5th of April when the tax year ends and then make, think about making that claim. Okay. And when you're ready, if you head to the Medics Many website, you can use our free guide. It's as I say, completely free. It's step-by-step, step, holds your hand all the way through it. Okay. And there's the link to the website there. Okay, so really simple. We do all the work for you. Just follow that and you should be able to do that. Just a little reminder here as well, keep a spreadsheet. So I obviously keep spreadsheets because I like them, but my other half who is also a doctor is horrendous at actually keeping track of his expenses. So when it comes towards the year end, he'll go, oh my God, I'm supposed to claim. I can't remember what I'm meant to claim for. And then we'll go trawling back through the bank accounts to see what we paid. And it's it like, if there's anything you do, just start with a spreadsheet and have it saved as expenses and add anything when it happens at the time with the date and where you've kept the receipt and then your life's really easy at the year end to be able to claim it back. Okay, Guys, we got two accountants on this call and it's 17 minutes and 12 seconds until someone said spreadsheet. I'm really disappointed. In the sweepstake, I had less than five minutes and I was like, this is me. I'm going to win the sweepstake. 17 minutes and 12 uh, seconds before one of the accountants yeah. said spreadsheet. Ed said spreadsheet. Ed said spreadsheet. He yeah, said spreadsheet. I think I've definitely said Ooh, spreadsheet yeah. before, sadly. But if we, if I haven't, then obviously I made the bet for 17 minutes. So uh, I think I, I win the, the sweepstake. <laughs> but no, you, but definitely uh, spreadsheets. I love them. And yes, they're really, it's a really good idea. I definitely sorry that I do that exactly. I put all my sentences down on a spreadsheet. Another thing you could do is if, you know, on your laptop or your computer, you could make a folder for each tax year and put any receipts you get. Because each of these bodies, they normally do email out a receipt for the payments and you can like save those in a, in a folder somewhere on your laptop. But definitely, yeah, spreadsheets are the way forward, I think, personally. Just to say on the expense claims, guys, if for any reason you are already completing a tax return or you end up having to create a tax return, that maybe, I mean, you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that someone listening in might be, for example, renting out a property and having to do a tax return because of that or whatever reason, just make sure you know that you claim your expenses via that tax return. Okay. You don't use our guide. You just do it on that tax return. Okay. Awesome. So I think this is really important. You know, this is going to save you thousands of pounds over your career. And if you have done this and you're feeling smug, I bet you your colleagues haven't. So just tell them about it. Okay. Over 42,000 doctors now have used our free guide to save themselves thousands of pounds in tax. I like to think that HMRC, they've got like our faces on a dartboard because we're costing them so much. But this is a legitimate tax reclaim. And like Ed said, no one is going to do this for you. If you do nothing about tax, you're likely going to pay too much. HMRC are not going to phone you up and say, hi, Dr. Asher, I can see that you've sat a really expensive exam. Here's a tax rebate on it. You have to do this yourself. And our free guide makes it super easy to do. And we've got a ton of other resources, podcasts, FAQs, blogs, all to help you do it. Medics Money is not just for doctors. If you go to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash nurses, you will find a nurses tax guide. So if you're working with nurses on the wards and they are struggling as well as we all are, just tell them to go to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash nurses and they will find a tax guide 
specific for them because there's some intricacies there, like the washing the uniform. Bizarrely, they can claim like a tights allowance and stuff. I don't want to get into those weeds today, if that's okay, because you two will talk about tax forever. And this is not just about tax, but just go to nurses money. So shall we get into the payslip? Yeah, definitely. We are going to get into the payslip, but we're mainly going to say to you guys that the payslip does get pretty complicated. And what we'd recommend, we're going to show you an example of what a payslip will look like for those of you who are yet to join the workforce. But what we'd recommend is if you go to our website or if you Google Minix Money and Payslip, you should come across our blog, which breaks down each of the sections on the payslip and explains to you what exactly each bit means. Okay. But uh, we're about to show you what my payslip looked like when I was doing a paediatric rotation. So you can see it becomes pretty complicated. Lots of things on the left, lots of things on the right. The things on the right will always kind of be there for you, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, as long as you're an, a, an employee. But the bits on the left, that's where things get a little bit more complicated, trying to work out what your gross pay is going to be. But as I say, if you go to our website, you know, I break down each of those boxes and what exactly they're telling you. Okay, so go away when you're ready and have a look at that. Hopefully it should explain to you exactly what's going on. Okay, yeah, there is one bit I wanted to flag up, which is where it says tax code. If you can see there's a tax code there, it says 1257L right in the kind of middle-ish, middle right of the screen. So remember that because our next section is all about what that means, because this is very important. Okay, so your tax code, guys, it's really important to keep an eye on this, all right? Mainly because sadly, often it comes up wrong. Okay, I don't want to worry anyone, but it's not common for this to be wrong, okay? So it's really important to keep an eye on this. Your tax code is a code, hence the name, which is sent to your payroll department by HMRC to tell them how much tax to deduct each month in terms of your income tax, okay? At its most basic, it's made up of your tax-free or personal allowance divided by 10 and then a letter. So as a personal allowance for the current tax year, and it will be the same for quite a while because it's been frozen at this level until 2028, as the current personal allowance is £12,570, most people, including yourselves, should have a tax code of 1257L, okay? You can find your tax code in any payslip, just as I demonstrated on my old payslip before. It will also appear in any documents such as P60s and P45s, just one thing on that. So a P60, just so you know, is a document you get from your employer, your employer that you were employed by on the 5th of April for any tax year. Okay. So at the end of the tax year, give it a month and you should get a P60 from your employer, which details all your taxable income for the previous tax year and other things like that. And it's a really important document, guys. So definitely save it somewhere. Okay. It's really important, for example, when you want to get a mortgage and other things like that. So keep your P60s. P45 is a document you get when you leave employment as well, okay? So you'll get a few of those P45s if you move different, around different trusts as part of your career as a doctor, okay? Again, keep those. I would also recommend you keep any payslips as well. And just like I said, you know, keep a folder for your receipts that you get. Keep all these things in a folder because they're really important. When Tommy and I were going through the various hospital placements, they used to get them sent by post to the mess and there'd be stacks of payslips, which nobody ever claimed and P60s. And it used to break my heart because they're so important to keep. Okay. So you'll thank me in the future when you've kept them. Okay. And I think so, would you have a comment or question? Yeah. Just in note of the P60s and P45s, they, are, they can actually be used as a proof of address. 
So as when we first start with med school, I moved house four times. And then I've also moved house twice in the last two years. And so please keep all your addresses up to date with your employer every time you move. Make sure your P60 is the most up to date because your P60 can be used as a proof of address. If you move trust and they need to do a new DBS, or if you want to join the staff bank and they need some sort of proof of address, especially because it's quite, if your name's like correct and everything, it can be quite a useful document to have but if it's not got the right address on it they won't be able to accept it so just a little note that's something that i came across recently so i thought i'd mention that's really good yeah absolutely that's really you know really good tip there absolutely so so another reason another good reason to, to keep all these relevant documents guys really important once you've made a claim for professional expenses just like we talked about in the previous slides you know we mentioned those professional expenses your gmc fee etc once you've made that a claim for them usually hmrc will change your tax code to reflect that and give you a chunk of tax relief every month at source okay so you may see your tax code change once you've made uh, a professional expenses claim once it's worked its way through the system okay so you may originally have 1257l it may go up, hopefully, once you made your first claim for professional expenses as HMRC try and give you that relief each month rather than make you wait until the following year to get some more relief. Yeah, every time I see someone post their payslip on Twitter and I see a 1257L tax code, I just think, are you claiming all the expenses that you can? And you might be thinking, why is Ed's tax code 1257L? That is because you do it via self-assessment, right? So just no, actually, it's 1257L because I, I updated all the figures and I thought it'd be easier to write 1257L in that box. Actually, my tax code is something like 1384L, I think it is. But yeah, I, just made, okay. it, I made it 1257 for this example. So uh, lovely. All oh, right. Nice. And, okay. Yeah, cool. And now, why is it important to keep an eye on your tax code? Okay, so it's really important to keep an eye on your tax code, particularly if you change employer, which happens a fair bit. In particular, if you go from F1 to F2, things can start to go a bit wrong here. So it's really important to keep an eye on your tax code, okay? Because it's not uncommon, sadly and annoyingly, for HMRC to decide that you have two jobs or potentially more and change your tax code to what they call an emergency tax code. So you may see on your payslip a 0T or a D0, and they may overtax you. If you see a BR tax code, it may well be that they're potentially undercharging you, okay? Now, I'm not saying that every single time you get a payslip, if it has any of these codes, it's definitely wrong. Okay, that's not the point. The point is on your main payslip, you wouldn't really expect to have an emergency tax code like 0T or D0 or BR. Okay, on your main payslip, you should expect to see that 1257L or preferably a slightly higher amount if you've been claiming your expenses. Okay, but what happens is when you change jobs, so if you take me as an example, so I worked initially at the, at the Royal Surrey in Guildford as an F1, and then I moved to St. Richard's in Chichester for my F2. Now, I think the changeover date on that day, on that Wednesday, was something like the 5th of August, etc. So I got a payslip from Royal Surrey, because I think my pay date was the 23rd of the month. So I got a payslip from the 23rd of July to the 5th of August from the Royal Surrey. And then I got a payslip from the 5th of August to the 23rd of August from St. Richard's. And HMRC thought that meant I had two jobs rather than a change of jobs. Okay. So what they did was they changed my F2 payslip, my Chichester payslip, and they put me on an emergency tax code. And I paid a significant amount of tax on that, which I shouldn't be paying. Okay. You know, just have a look at this example. Imagine just, for example, a £70,000 salary. I know that's not what you guys are going to be getting, but just use that as an example and think about the tax you'd pay 
on these four different tax codes. And you can see your tax bill for that chap should be £15,432. If he's put on a 0T code, it's £17,886. So a big increase. If it's a D0 tax code, it's £28,000. So you can see, you know, if they get the tax code wrong, you're going to be overpaying tax. And that's not a good thing, especially not in this climate when money's quite tight for everyone. Okay, so just keep an eye on things, in particular, if you're going from F1 to F2. Okay, and if you think that your tax code is incorrect, if you think it's wrong, you know, please do once again, go to our website, makesmoney.co.uk. We've got a blog all about your tax code, what it means, how to interpret it. And what to do if you think it's wrong, okay? Because you can do that via, you know, you can, go, you can basically go online to get that changed, okay? Sorry, do you have a comment? Yeah, it was just what you were mentioning about the them thinking you've got more than one job. So this has happened to a few of my colleagues and myself as well. When at med school, we work for like some of one of us worked for a boat club. I worked for this merchandising place at the NEC, and so these ad hoc jobs, sort of things, they just keep you on their books indefinitely so even if you haven't worked for them for over a year they'll still just keep you on their books so you'll still be seen as an employee of that company on the hmrc when you look at your income tax account so you like either you can officially go through that employer and say like could you just take me off your book so then it can be updated or you can actually tell hmrc yourself that i don't work for this place anymore please can you remove them as an employer so I would suggest doing the latter and I've done it both online and over the phone and it's actually been really straightforward. So that, you know, there, it's not going to be like the end of the world. If that happens to you, just let them know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the next slide is the last bit from me. And it's just to talk about checks that you may receive regarding cremation form completion and the income you get from those. So if you get paid a fee for completing a cremation form. There's hopefully some good news for you guys when it comes to tax, because we get a lot of people that worry about what to do about this income that they're receiving from funeral directors uh, in regards to a cremation form they're completed. Now, assuming that you don't get more than £1,000 in cremation form income in a tax year, which on the whole is unlikely, then some good news. You don't have to tell HMRC about the income, okay? And you don't owe HMRC any tax. And that's because under their guidance, they classify commercial form income as miscellaneous income, and they automatically give everyone a £1,000 trading income allowance for against miscellaneous income, which is applied automatically. So if your commercial form income is less than £1,000 in a tax year, which is likely you're, you don't have to do anything, okay? You don't have to pay tax on it, and you don't have to tell HMRC about it. It's all just done automatically, mainly because HMRC just don't want the admin burden of having to deal with that, okay? So hopefully some good news. If you go over a thousand pounds, then you're going to need to do more with that, including potentially do a tax return. But I think that's not going to apply to you guys. And I'm going to hand over to Tommy. Awesome. So, you know, that is just a really quick run through of what you need to know about tax. And it is incredibly important, you know, that you need to do that. But it's also really incredibly important to make sure that you spend your hard-earned money consciously and not unconsciously because small amounts of spending add up. And I'm just going to give you a demonstration of how you could spend £139,000 on lunch in the canteen. And Syra's going to chip in as well because I know that she likes to talk about spending because... You know, you're spending too much is just going to cost you potentially £139,000 on lunch. And if you're not familiar with Warren Buffett, he is a legendary American investor. 
he likes to keep things simple. So he says, do not save what is left after spending. Instead, spend what is left after saving. And that is basically totally fundamental. So how much do you spend like right now? How much have you spent in, at hospital on lunch in the last month? And if you don't know, that's why you need to get a budget, which again, involves a spreadsheet, I would argue. And I'm sure Cyber would agree with that. But I just want to show you how small amounts of spending add up. Okay, so James was a GP registrar and he was spending 200 pounds a month on lunch at the hospital. Okay, he was super busy. He didn't have time to make a packed lunch and he didn't think that, you know, nine pounds a day was excessive on lunch. But actually, if he could reduce this spending to just £1.50 a day, then he could potentially save £139,000. And I'm going to show you how. We chose £1.50 a day. I wanted to reduce it to zero, but Ed said that everybody needs to be able to buy one coffee per day, which is kind of reasonable, I think. But also it's reflective that if you're going to make your own lunch, I think you could make it for £1.50 a day, wouldn't you say, Syrah? Yeah. Definitely. So okay. I, I love making lunches where we've made like a batch cook dinner or something, or we're making dinner and we'll make sort of one and a half a month, the amount we need. And then we've got lunches for the next couple of days sorted. So that's how we bring down the cost. And my other half is likes having his coffee and spending his £1.50. It's usually £3, isn't it, really, on a coffee. I'm a bit more militant. I refuse to buy any tea or coffee at the hospital. I if it, I take my own tea bags in a little box, and I take my little milk in my little pot, and I make I, hot water is available everywhere, and I just make my own teas and coffees out of just pure spite, really, just because of how expensive it is. So I'm a bit more militant when it comes to these things. Okay, so so let's just look at this graph, okay, because. We said James was spending £200 a month, okay, so £9 a day, but he's going to reduce that to just £1.50 a day, okay, so that will save him £166 a month. So over a 30-year career, that will add up to £59,760, okay, which is the bottom line. So that's the amount that he would actually save by not buying lunch at the hospital. And then you're thinking, well, how do you get to 139000 well, this is something that we're going to talk about in a bit. But if you just leave your cash in the bank, that 59000 is probably not going to grow very much. In fact, you could argue its value is going to go down due to something called inflation. But if you were to invest that money sensibly in a well-diversified portfolio and assume that you got a 5% return, which is very conservative historically, that £59,760 could turn into £139,000. So I think this demonstrates two things, is that one, small amounts of spending really add up over time. And two, if you have some spare money that you've saved by being smart with your money like Syrah and not spending it all on coffee like Ed, then you need to take the next step and think about investing it. And we're going to talk about that a bit in a moment. But I just wanted to make the point that small amounts of spending add up. When you become a doctor, you might have thought that you're going to drive a Porsche and buy a mansion in Chelsea. Unfortunately, the reality is very different, as we've seen from the first slide. So you need to start thinking about spending just like you were when you were a student, i.e. frugally. Unfortunately, can I shamelessly plug a budgeting spreadsheet that I've got for free? 
Yeah. It's on my Instagram page. So if you go to at the finance medic and there's a link straight to a budgeting spreadsheet that I've made, it's completely free. I don't even want your details for it. It's absolutely just for anybody. It's not been vetted by medics money. They have nothing to do with it. Please don't yell at them if you don't like it. And it just helps you track everything. And I've been so specific, like right down to little things because it's things like that coffee here or there or that croissant here or there from Pret, which are so good but it does all add up so actually just keeping track of what you're spending and you start to kind of see oh okay like i'm not saying don't enjoy those things i'm just saying have a look at how much you're actually spending and see can i do it sort of two or three times a week rather than every day and it just gives you an idea of what you're actually spending Definitely. Like, like I said, spend consciously on things that you like and enjoy and that you know how much cost you. Don't get to the end of the month and go, wonder why our bank account's empty. Have a look at your bank statement. And it's just like prep, cost to cost to prep, which is basically what Ed's would look like, I reckon. No offense, mate. Okay. Wow. Pensions. So <laughs> pensions is a absolutely massive topic and we have tons of resources about it in our website. So I suggest that you check those out. I just wanted to make a few key points, really. So, and you might have noticed on Ed's payslip example earlier that it had a deduction for his pension of 9.3%. And you're thinking, I wonder what that's for. So a pension is a tax efficient way to save for retirement. And it's described as tax efficient because a higher rate taxpayer paying 40% tax who puts £1 into their pension will get tax relief on that contribution. So that £1 of contribution would effectively just cost 60p. And so the NHS pension scheme is unusual and good, which is a bit of an oversimplification on the slide, but uh, unusual because it's what's called a defined benefit pension scheme. And most pensions available today are what's called a defined contribution scheme or a private pension. So let's look at what happens in a defined contribution or private scheme. So in that a defined contribution scheme, you and your employer pay into a pot, okay? And then this pot would usually be invested in the stock market or bonds or something else. And the value of your pot depends on the performance of those investments over time. When you retire, this pot is your pension. And so if, you, if that pot runs out, then you could, the in theory, run out of money in retirement if you have a private or defined contribution scheme. The NHS scheme, as I said, is a lot different. So it's known as a defined benefit or DB scheme. And in this scheme, you and your employer, i.e. the NHS, make a contribution. And the contribution that you as an employee make depends on how much you earn and it's in tiered rates. But so, so sometimes the contributions can vary depending on what you earn. And then there is no real pot. But what happens at retirement is that the Benefit is defined. So you will receive a guaranteed index link, which means it's inflation proof income for life. They, unlike a private pension, there is no pot to run out. You will just get paid the same amount inflation linked, protected from inflation for your entire retirement, whether you live to 80 or 120. So it does have significant benefits over a private pension. I've put other benefits as well. The pen NHS pension comes with lots of other benefits. So if you get sick and can't work, it comes with ill health retirement benefits. It comes with spouse benefits. It comes with children's pensions in certain situations. So it's got a lot of benefits and we can't give you individual financial advice, but 
I can't really think of any reason why a new doctor would not contribute to the NHS pension. It's a valuable part of your overall pay package. And how I think about it is the NHS is basically saying, okay, Dr. Perkins, we're going to pay you this amount for working today. And then we're going to pay you this amount when you retire. If you opt out of the NHS pension scheme, you are giving up access to an incredibly valuable benefit. And it's part of your overall pay package. You're getting paid some money today and some money when you retire. The NHS pension is complex and I would encourage you to have a look at all the resources on our website. But for now, all you really need to know is that you need to get what's called a total reward statement or a TRS. And these come on your electronic staff record. And a bit like all the paperwork that Ed and Syrah told you to get, your P45, your payslip and your P60, you've done all that. The next bit of paperwork you need is your total reward statement. It's a record of your contributions. It's incredibly important record of probably what is going to be the best investment you will ever make. So that was the NHS pension in about four minutes, clearly not going to do it justice, but it's still a great deal. Me, Ed and Syrah are all in on the NHS pension because we recognize its value. It does have some issues for higher earners with tax. The retirement age is an issue, which we mentioned earlier, and you just need to get a total award statement. What did I miss? What else do we need to say about pensions? You've not missed anything, but I do these talks for final year medical students and I get this question lots, actually, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on it. So people, especially given what things are currently like for doctors or the strikes, which you so not very kindly saying talks are over, they're thinking of doing F1 and 2 and leaving the country and not working for the NHS ever again. And so they're asking, well, if I'm only going to be in it for two years at this such an early stage, should I stay in it or not? And I have my own views on this, but I just wondered what your thoughts were. So, okay, great, great question. So, so your options are really, if you're in it for a certain amount of time, you can ask for a refund of contributions. I forget the exact time interval on that. But the other point to make is that if you did F1 and F2 and built up your pension in this NHS, and then you went to Australia and you never came back, at retirement, you have the option to have your NHS pension paid to a really wide range of bank accounts all over the world. So I can't give you individual financial advice, but the way that I think about it is that it's such an incredibly important benefit. I would always get in it. And then, as I said, if you leave the country and never come back, you can claim it at retirement. No problem. I don't know. What's your thoughts, Syrah? So I usually, you know, my, my thoughts are that I explain that you can either get a refund if you want on your in on what's going on, or you can get it from a different bank account for anywhere in the world. So, but then my personal thought I said when if it was me I'd rather have my contributions now because of how tough things are at the moment in F1 and F2 like that extra 200 and something pound a month could make the biggest difference because we are making between 14 and 16 pound an hour so I don't disagree with someone if they decide to opt out if they are 100% sure that they're going to leave the country after two years and never ever come back to the NHS. And that's kind of how I phrase it. Yeah. I mean, I said I couldn't think of a reason why, or I could think of only one reason why a junior doctors would opt out and affordability, you know, that, that like he just said, unfortunately, that is on the radar. Now, when I left med school, I was in a dire financial situation, which is why we started Medics Money. But even throughout all of that, I still managed to continue contributing to my pension. And I was driving a 15 year old car that was terrible. Actually, it wasn't terrible. I quite like that car, but you know, people judge me for it. it was and so that was just a choice I made. And now I look back at the value 
of those contributions that I made as an F1 and F2, they are massive because don't forget those contributions effectively compound over time. Every year, the pension is basically revalued. So those contributions you make as an F1 and F2 are actually some of the most valuable contributions that you can make. So if you're struggling with affordability, definitely, but otherwise not advice, but I chose to stay in the pension at any opportunity. And even now, you know, one of the main benefits of working for the NHS, I do view the pension it is still an incredibly valuable part of our pay. It's not as good as it was, you could argue. But yeah, I think that's a really good question and a bit of a dilemma. But I think just explore all your options, know that you can get it paid out to you in any bank account in so many different countries if you didn't come back. And yeah, I also went to New Zealand intending never to come back. And then family issues, it's a long way etc etc an amazing country to work in totally changed my view of working in nhs not for the better but i did come back so yeah, you can't predict the future basically so yeah difficult this graph here is slightly redundant really but i just wanted to show you <laughs> given what we've just been talking about i would always contribute to my pension before i started thinking about investing okay but if you could invest here is a few examples of what's called compound interest and compound interest is such a powerful feature it's often said that those that understand it gain from it and those that don't understand it pay it and what it's saying there is really that your investments compound over time so here is four doctors okay that were lucky enough to be able to save 200 pounds a month maybe they'd read cyrus budgeting tips article which is excellent and you should check out on our website so we've got Dr. Consistent, £200 a month from the age of 25. At the age of 65, this has turned into £381,604. Okay. Then we have Dr. Nervous, who thought investing is risky, investing is dangerous. I don't want to lose all my money. I'm just going to keep my money in the bank. Uh, they contributed exactly the same amount as Dr. Consistent, £200 a month, but they only ended up with £98,328. So that just shows you what I said earlier, that cash is really not an investment. And if you want to start growing your money, you need to think about investing and learn about investing. And Dr. Late probably was like me and Ed who's, and Syra, who spent the best part of their 20s and 30s studying either at medical school, or accountancy school or otherwise, and were not able to start saving any money until the age of 40. And you can see the impact of that. So age 40, we start investing 200 pounds a month. At the end, age of 65, we only have 135,000 pounds, which is still a lot of money, but a lot less than Dr. Consistent, who was able to start early. So if you can get started with investing early, small amounts of investing add up and you need to start harnessing the power of compound interest. If you are interested in investing, we've got loads more about investing on our website. You might have heard the term financial planning for doctors, and it's quite likely that you've had a poorly trained salesperson come to your medical school and pitch you trying to sell you income protection under the guise of it being a financial plan. This annoyed me and Ed and Syra so much that we started Medics Money because generally these sales pitches seem like they're endorsed by your medical school. They don't tell you any of the useful tax information that Ed talked about. They just try and sell you a product. You can build your own financial plan when you are a junior doctor and is very straightforward. So really, you do need a plan, and that does include spreadsheets. You need to just think about maximizing your income. And I've put work smart, not hard here, which is a horrible cliche phrase. But I guess what I was 
alluding to there is make sure you pay the right amount of tax. You know, use the tax tips that Ed and Syrah have shown you today to make sure that you are working smart and not hard and do not pay too much tax. Just pay the right amount of tax. Minimize expenditure. Hopefully the last couple of graphs have shown you why that whatever your income, if you're earning a million pounds a year and you're spending a million and one pounds a year, you're still going to be in debt despite earning a million pounds. So minimizing your expenditure and only spending money on things that you like consciously and not unconsciously. I'm going to talk about protecting your most valuable asset in a minute. Stop trading your time for money is basically alluding to the fact that being a doctor is a great job, but we are paid for our time. We go to work and we exchange one hour of our time for one hour of our money. If you can start investing in whatever, you can start to decouple one hour of your time from one hour of your money. If, you're, if you've got investments and you go to work as a doctor, you earn whatever your doctor pay is per hour, and then you get home at the end of the day and you can see how much your investments have made. And that does not require any additional time. So decoupling your hourly time from your money is a pretty good strategy. And I've just covered looking after your pension. Get your total award statement and just think very carefully about how beneficial it is. Protect your most valuable asset. Okay, so I mentioned that poorly trained salesperson has probably visited your medical school and try and sell you some income protection. And it is an incredibly important thing to think about. And I think about it like this. If you get sick and can't work, how are you going to pay your bills? Okay. And I don't insure anything that I can afford to replace. So I don't insure my mobile phone. I don't even insure my beloved surfboards, but I do insure mine and my family's future. And the way that you can insure your future is using these three kind of protection policies. So income protection is an insurance policy, which will pay out if you cannot work. So it's designed to replace your income. Critical illness insurance is a policy that will pay out if you get one of a predefined list of critical illnesses. Usually it's a lump sum. So for example, if you were unlucky enough to get cancer and you couldn't work, if you had income protection, the income protection would pay you some money and your critical illness policy might also pay out as well. The third thing is life insurance, which is to insure against premature death. Okay. Now, the policies that you need are going to be personal to you. And you really do need to consult a financial advisor about this. And it does need to be a financial advisor. And it doesn't want to be a salesperson masquerading as a financial advisor. And this annoyed me and Ed so much because you need to know that there's two types of financial advisors. There's independent financial advisors who can advise you on a wide range of products from across the market. And because they're independent, they can use any product that's on the market to make sure that you get the best deal. Okay, so that's independent financial advisors. There's also what's called a restrictive financial advisor and restrictive financial advisors, as the name suggests, can only advise you on a restricted number of products and policies. And as a result, you may not get the best deal. And frustratingly, your medical school has probably invited a restricted financial advisor in to talk about this to you and sell you policies, which seems kind of counterintuitive to us because we were thinking, why would they do that? I don't know why they do that, but you could maybe ask them if there's any kickbacks or benefits for them for doing this. But that was why me and Ed set up Medics Money, because we have all of the best specialist medical financial advisors that are independent. OK, so you just need to find an independent financial advisor. 
not a restricted financial advisor. And the independent financial advisor needs to specialize in advising doctors. Nobody can agree what defines a specialist medical financial advisor. So we made our own definition. We only let the best independent financial advisors join Medics Money. Over 10,000 doctors have used it now. So just have a think about protection. Syra, on that really quickly, the income protection. If you're watching that, especially if you're someone who's just left med school and you're thinking, oh, well, I'll just get round to it. I mean, you know, it doesn't, it's fine for now. I'm, you know, I don't have a family or I'm single and I'm 23 or whatever. I'm a bit older, but I just went through this process. And first of all, it's extremely, it's a really difficult process emotionally because you're being asked some very intimate questions about your health, about your family life, about your plans. And also, I don't know about people nowadays, but in my, when I was at medical school, 60% of my cohort was on antidepressants. And so with, if you have a mental health diagnosis, depending on what it is, you could actually be declined income protection and critical illness cover because those are one of the main reasons people apply for these. Those are one of the main reasons people get a payout. So, apologies, there's a the door's gone. And I've been declined because of this. So, you know, if you're thinking this is not going to affect me, it's going to be fine. Actually, you might come to it, you might have left it a little while, you might have collected a couple of diagnoses on the way. And um, you might be declined entirely. So do it early before anything really affects you. Definitely. I mean, thanks for sharing that personal insight, Syra, because that's really important. What Syra is saying there is, when you're young, hopefully you're healthy so just do it early before you accumulate any comorbidities okay and i mean since we're sharing personal anecdotes i recently cut three my two index my index my middle and my thumb clean off and so i thought that i would be invincible when i was young and i would always be fit and healthy luckily i took my own advice and got income protection and other policies in place because at the moment because my hand has been chopped off it's back on thanks to incredible work from my NHS colleagues, I cannot work. And so if I didn't have insurance right now, me and my family would be really struggling financially, but I do have insurance. So I don't have to worry about money at all because I've got the right protection in place and I can just focus 100% on getting better. So it's tempting to put it off for another day. Like Cyrus says, it can be expensive. If you have bought it from a financial advisor and you're not sure if they're restricted or independent, because Cunningly, restrictive financial advisors often don't advertise that they're restricted and your medical school probably recommends them, which really annoys us. But if that has happened, have a look around on Medics Money. We tell you why independent is best and you can just ask one of our independent financial advisors to get you another quote. And there is two examples on Medics Money where doctors in that exact situation saved over 10,000 pounds on premiums because they went, they used a restrictive financial advisor that was given to them by their medical school. They came to Medics Money and they saved 10 grand on independent. So thanks for sharing your personal insights. My personal insight is that if you think you're invincible, it's never going to happen to you. It did. But because I have insurance, it has made absolutely no difference to my financial situation whatsoever. And I cannot imagine how stressful it would be to be rehabbing from a major injury or getting better from a mental health point of view and having to worry about the finances. So yeah, thank, th- thanks for sharing that, Sarah. Yes. And I hope that, you know, don't ignore this bit. It's towards the end of the presentation, but it's probably the most important bit in my opinion. Sarah, over to you. My favorite bit, I'm a bit of a- My favorite bit too, because I've just <laughs> used one of these to get a new mobile phone. 
So, absolutely. And I'm really proud of you for getting a SIM-only deal because why do you need to have the latest phone on contract all the time? Like, my iPhone lasts me between three and five years. I know I'm not, like, the hip person with my iPhone 11, but come on, like, a SIM-only deal. I'm only actually paying a tenner a month for 30 gigabytes. I'm sorry, I'm now being, like, a total salesperson and unlimited calls and texts. So, you know, that's another money-saving thing that we do. But... I love finding discounts. There's so many places that give you NHS discounts and it's always worth asking, even if they haven't said anything and they might just look at you and go, okay, thank you for your service. And then just give you like a employee discount as well, which has happened to me before. I am very persuasive though. But you can also get, talking about the mental health thing, you can get access to two free things. You can get access to Headspace completely free, which is fabulous. And you can get access to Unmind, for a year and that's completely free as well using your nhs email address blue light card is excellent value you'll make that money back in no time i think it gives you i've not even put it here but you get something like 50 percent off my protein if you're into that kind of thing with a blue light card so for 4.99 you're doing pretty well and even at morrison's they have it now and again where they give 10 percent off if you've got a blue light card on your shop so We've got one worth having. And then I've included some websites down here. Of These are the websites I tend to use if I'm doing a shop or want, planning to spend money. And one key thing which Money Saving Expert has said is if you plan on spending the money, that's fine. You will probably make a saving by doing this. If you're going to spend the money because of these savings or because you think this is a really good deal, then you're not really saving money at all. You're spending money you wouldn't have spent. So that's a little caveat that like, don't just because there's all these offers and all these things doesn't mean you have to go and spend the money. Just wisely look when you're about to do a shop. Is there a discount code for this on one of these websites, which is what I do. I think one of them has the voucher codes has a plugin that you it just automatically checks for you. Quickly check blue light card and see if they've got a code for it. And worse, you know, the other thing I have actually not included on here because it's not NHS related specifically is I also use Top Cashback and Quidco for cashback deals. So this is just for everybody. It's not just NHS people who work for the NHS, but that's a really good way as well, especially on car insurance, house insurance and phone contracts, travel of making a little bit of cashback on what you are planning to spend anyway. Absolutely. And if you're thinking uh, saving one pound here, there seems kind of pointless. Just think back to the £139,000 hospital lunch. You know, if you compound these savings over a career, effectively, you're saying you're changing your behavior here because you're basically becoming more frugal and not paying too much for stuff that you don't need. I love that. And yeah, I made use of several of these recently. And I want to I've been using Headspace a lot as well, obviously, with the injury, I'm really trying to make my voice like the headspace voice, but it's not really working. But that's what I'm aiming for. Wow. Who's going to sum this up? Because it's big. Ed. Yeah, sure. So I think we've gone through quite a few things here. I guess takeaway points. First of all, make sure that you keep a record of all the expenses that you're incurring as a doctor. Okay. Spreadsheet, whatever you want to do, just keep a note of them and make sure that you claim every allowable expense that you can do, okay? Because it's really important to get that money back and no one's going to do that for you, okay? Make sure you keep an eye on your tax code. As I said before, you know, if it's wrong, you're going to pay the wrong amount of tax, which isn't great. Definitely, if you're moving to F2, definitely check then on your first payslip. Sometimes it doesn't take effect till the second payslip. So don't think just because you've got the first one, then it's okay. You're out of the woods. Keep checking, okay? 
I think it's fair to say we've all mentioned keep an eye on you'll keep all the documents you can okay so I'd recommend you keep all your pay slips usually they're electronic now so just save them somewhere keep your p60s your p45s your total award statements you know really important thing guys okay make sure you look into your own financial circumstances and whether or not what the best type of types of insurance would be for yourselves Tommy's gone through all that the different types but just yeah as we said, you know, that's really important, guys. I didn't get my insurance sorted till I was like 38. And I really, I'm just very glad that nothing happened before then because it quite easily could have done and then I could have been in big trouble. Okay. So definitely look into that. And of course, uh, you know, keep an eye on those GC NHS discounts that, that Sarah's gone through. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that, everyone. It was great for everyone just to be working together like this. I love it. The, everything is summarized in the ebook. So medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook, or if you scan that QR code, it will take you to the ebook and you can get all of this down because you don't have to do this all in one day. It's going to take you a lifetime basically to get the hang of this. But just if you've got the basics established early doors, like we've discussed here, that will help you a lot. So that's the ebook. We have our podcast, which is in crazy approaching a million downloads now. So you can download the podcast there each Tuesday and most Thursdays we put out an episode. Even when I chop my hand off, we still carry on doing the podcast. We're on Instagram as well. You can follow us there. We're also on threads if that's still a thing by the time this goes out. We're on Twitter. Our YouTube channel is also available. That's it. Thanks so much, everyone. That was brilliant. I hope that helps. And if you've got any questions and you're watching on YouTube, drop them in the comments. We'll do our best to answer them. And if you want to see more content like this, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button on YouTube. Thanks so much, Syra and Ed. Cool. Thanks, guys. Bye.